Good morning. My name is Brianna and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the MasterCard Incorporated Q4 and Full Year 2023 Earnings Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. Please only press star one once to queue up for a question, as pressing star one multiple times may affect your position in the queue. If you would like to withdraw your question, press star one. Thank you. Mr. Devin Kaur, Head of Investor Relations, you may begin your conference. Thank you, Brianna. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for our fourth quarter 2023 earnings call. With me today are Michael Miebeck, our Chief, Chief Executive Officer, and Sachin Mera, our Chief Financial Officer. Following comments from Michael and Sachin, the operator will announce your opportunity to get into the queue for the Q&A session. It is only then that the queue will open for questions. You can access our earnings release, supplemental performance data, and the slide deck that accompany this call in the Investor Relations section of our website, mastercard.com. Additionally, the release was furnished for the SEC earlier this morning. Our comments today regarding our financial results will be on a non-GAAP, currency-neutral basis unless otherwise noted. Both the release and the slide deck include reconciliations of non-GAAP measures to GAAP reported amounts. Finally, as set forth in more detail in our earnings release, I would like to remind everyone that today's call will include forward-looking statements regarding MasterCard's future performance. Actual performance could differ materially from these forward-looking statements. Information about the factors that could affect future performance are summarized at the end of our earnings release and in our recent SEC filings. A replay of this call will be posted on our website for 30 days. With that, I will now turn the call over to our Chief Executive Officer, Michael Miebeck. Thank you, Devin. Good morning, everyone. Here's the headline. We closed out 2023 with another quarter of strong earnings and revenue growth. Quarter four net revenues were up 11% and operating income up 13%, both versus a year ago on a non-GAAP currency neutral basis, excluding special items, as always. These results were driven by healthy consumer spending and the ongoing execution of our strategy. Our deal momentum continued this quarter, powered by a broad range of unique, diversified products and services, both designed to solve our customers' needs. Let's start on the macroeconomic front, where we see both tailwinds and headwinds. First, the labor market remains strong with low unemployment and rising wages. These remain key drivers of consumer spending. Some risks we're monitoring include credit availability and delinquency rates. Second, while inflation continues to moderate, prices of many goods and services remain elevated. We're tracking the efforts of central banks who are actively managing interest rates to normalize inflation. And finally, geopolitical uncertainty remains a concern in several markets. On balance, we remain fairly positive about the growth outlook, but we are monitoring the environment closely and will manage the business accordingly. Looking at our switch, uh, switch trends this quarter, domestic volume growth remains healthy, and cross-border spending remains strong, up 18% globally in the fourth quarter on a local currency basis. With that as a backdrop, we remain focused on our strategic priorities, which fuel our growth algorithm across payments and services and new networks. In payments, our growth algorithm consists of five key areas. One, being in the flow to capture the natural growth of economies. Two, accelerating the secular shift to electronic payments across both spend and transactions. 
Three, further penetrating the addressable market in new flows. And four, growing market share. And five, optimizing our customer portfolios for performance. Economies are growing and that's not in our control. However, we are executing on the rest. Building on that, the runway for the secular shift is substantial. We are accelerating it by scaling acceptance, enhancing the user experience for digital transactions and driving adoption in new sectors and new use cases. In 2023, we added millions of new acceptance locations worldwide. This growth has been aided by scaling our tap-on-phone and cloud commerce capabilities. We are now live in over 80 markets. Smaller merchants can start accepting payments by simply downloading an app. And larger merchants are leveraging the technology to promote quick and seamless checkout experiences anywhere in store. We're supporting partners like Apple, who in 2023 expanded tap to pay on iPhone into Australia, the UK, France, Brazil, and several other markets. We're also accelerating the secular shift away from both from cash and closed loop transactions such as transit through our contactless capabilities. Contactless provides a fast, secure, and seamless consumer experience in areas like transit. It creates an opportunity to capture incremental transactions with a tap for every single ride. And when consumers use contactless for transit, they often extend that behavior across other low-dollar spend categories. We've made great progress with many major cities, such as London and New York, operating broad-based open-loop systems. However, there's still significant runway for us, given that only a small percentage of large cities globally are operating open-loop systems at scale. And we're leaning into advanced payment technologies, like click-to-pay, tokenization, and biometrics. They offer embedded, secure, and password-free checkout solutions, and with that, bring an elevated level of security, simplicity, and speed to every transaction. And that's true regardless of the device, browser, or card. These solutions not only benefit consumers, but they also create value for merchants, as their customers are less likely to abandon a transaction. And issuers also benefit from an increase in customer stickiness. For Click2Pay, we are now live in over 35 countries, supported by over 50 channel partners. And in 2023, we drove over 60% growth in transactions. Klarna will implement Click2Pay this year and activate their merchants across all European markets where they operate. We're driving tokenization across all channels, including devices, commerce platforms, card on file, and guest checkout. Tokenization reduces fraud and increases approval rates by approximately three to six percentage points across regions. And we're expanding our biometric payment capabilities, which enable payments with a smile or a wave. After launching in Brazil, we have now partnered with NEC Corporation to bring our biometric checkout to the Asia-Pacific region. We're also driving growth by winning and retaining deals across consumer payments, account-to-account, and new flows. This week, we shared that BOK Financial will flip its U.S. debit portfolio to MasterCard, making us the exclusive partner across its debit and commercial portfolios. They selected us due to our differentiated virtual card and open banking assets, fraud solutions, and our shared commitment to financial inclusion. This marks the third U.S.-regulated debit flip we signed in the last year, building on our recent successes with Citizens and Webster Bank, both of which have now started converting their portfolios. And Viper Banca, one of the largest banks in Italy, will migrate their debit card portfolio to MasterCard as well. 
We renewed our partnership with Commonwealth Bank of Australia, where we will retain exclusivity across their consumer credit and debit portfolios. We signed a long-term partnership with Shin Han Car, the largest issuer in Korea, to solidify our leadership in the country. This relationship spans consumer and commercial card offerings and expands into new services, including data analytics. And in Canada, we executed an exclusive long-term renewal of the President's Choice Financial, consumer credit, and prepaid portfolios. We're also winning in fintechs, co-brands, and public sector partners. When it comes to fintechs, MasterCard is a partner of choice. In fact, MasterCard serves over 80% of the top digital payment and new bank fintechs on the CNBC Global Fintech list. This quarter starting bank, one of the largest fintechs in the UK, renewed their partnership with MasterCard. In the co-brand space, we're partnering with J.Crew and Synchrony in the US to launch the retailer's first co-branded digital first card. And in the public sector, we have an exclusive partnership with Pfizer Money Network for all U.S., state, and federal government benefit and wage disbursement debit programs. As part of our partnership, we are thrilled to launch with the California Economic Development Department in February, the largest unemployment program in the United States. As you can see, we continue our positive deal momentum, powered by our differentiated products and services, while always keeping a focus on financial discipline. This also helps us to capture more of the secular tailwind and, in turn, further drive services growth. Looking to China, we are thrilled that our joint venture in China has received formal approval to commence domestic bank card clearing. We believe that we will be uniquely positioned to provide Chinese consumers with an exceptional payment experience using a single card that's optimized for both domestic and cross-border spend. While we're excited about the medium to long-term opportunity, there's still work to be done as we fully build out the issuing and acceptance footprint. As we do that, we continue to grow our presence with bank and fintech partners in the market. ICPC launched the first World MasterCard product in November, and Bank of Communications selected MasterCard to launch their first international debit card. Beyond cards, we also continue to make meaningful progress in the account-to-account space. This quarter, we announced a long-term strategic partnership with The Clearinghouse, the operator of the RTP network, which continues to secure our position in real-time payments in the United States. Now, shifting gears, we continue to execute against our strategy to capture the large secular opportunity in targeted new flows, including commercial payments and disbursements and remittances. We continue to win in commercial. This spans commercial point of sale and B2B accounts payable, which we target through our market-leading virtual card solution. This quarter alone, we renewed our commercial relationships with JP Morgan and Fleet Corps, two of the largest commercial issuers in the United States. BNP Paribas Fortis will flip their business credit portfolio to MasterCard in Belgium. And on the virtual card front, we announced two exciting partnerships in the online travel agency space with Booking.com and Agoda. Turning now to disbursements and remittances, in 2023, we grew transactions by over 30%. We continue to scale our use cases. For example, UBS has integrated our cross-border services capability. This will enable them to execute instant cross-border payments from multiple use cases, including helping their customers pay employees abroad. In addition, we also partnered with Alipay to establish them as a cross-border payments receiving institution in China. Payments, services, and new networks reinforce each other. We said it countless times. Our services and new networks provide differentiation as noted in many of the wins I mentioned. 
Underlying payments growth helps drive services too. In payments growth, brings incremental rich data. Our services turn that data into valuable insights, and when implemented by our customers, those insights can drive incremental digitization of payments. In turn, this generates even more data, more transactions, more need for fraud tools. And the powerful cycle continues. The services and new networks components of our growth algorithms are built on driving increased penetration of existing customers, extending our services across new customers and customer types, and continuing to build and deploy new services. Here are a few examples of how we are executing against each of these. The past year, Bank of America has expanded their services relationship with us to include test and learn, program management, and supplier enablement solutions. This is on top of many of our services they already have. Access Bank in India has also expanded their relationship with us. They will use our consulting, marketing, and analytics services to support end-to-end -end portfolio lifecycle management. WorldPay is utilizing our fraud alerts to streamline the dispute resolution process. And Citi has deployed consumer clarity digital receipts to provide eligible U.S. cardholders with detailed purchase information directly through their bank app. Now, with increased visibility about the merchant and purchase details, consumers can easily validate transactions and reduce the number of disputes they file. Square is also integrating consumer clarity solution. Furthermore, Nexi has chosen MasterCard as a strategic partner to roll out open banking for e-commerce payments across Europe. And the list goes on. We're extending our services and solutions across new customer types, including large marketplaces. Alibaba will use MasterCard's open banking technology to help streamline the onboarding experience for small businesses on the U.S. marketplace and reduce fraud. And Meta utilizes our digital identity technology to improve authentication for online orders. We also continue to develop new services and solutions, many of which leverage the work we are doing with generative AI. Generative AI brings more opportunity to drive better experiences for our customers and makes it easier to extract insights from our data. It can also help us increase internal productivity. We're working on many Gen AI use cases today to do just that. For example, we recently announced Shopping Muse. Shopping Muse uses generative AI to offer a conversational shopping tool that recreates the in-store human experience online. It can translate consumers' colloquial language into tailored recommendations. Another example is MasterCard Small Business AI. The tool will draw on our existing small business resources, along with the content from a newly formed global media coalition, to help business owners navigate a range of business challenges. The platform, which is scheduled for pilot launch later this year, will leverage AI to provide personalized, real-time assistance delivered in a conversational tone. And finally, we expanded MasterCard Access which provides customers with a single point of connectivity to quickly and easily source our AI, digital, and identity services. Using Access, customers can deploy these services across multiple rails or networks, including those outside the MasterCard network. This is an exciting development, which enhances our ability to scale our services across networks and streamlines the ability for our customers to adopt our capabilities. So with that, I will wrap it up. In summary, we delivered another strong quarter and year of revenue and earnings growth. We're successfully executing against our strategy and on our growth algorithm. 
Our differentiated capabilities, diversified business model, and focused strategy position us well to capitalize on the significant opportunity in front of us. Sachin, over to you. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, Michael. Turning now to page three, which shows our financial performance for the fourth quarter on a currency-neutral basis, excluding where applicable, special items, and the impact of gains and losses on our equity investments. Net revenue was up 11%, reflecting continued growth in our payment network and our value-added services and solutions. Operating expenses increased 9%, including a minimal impact from acquisitions. And operating income was up 13%, including a minimal impact from acquisitions. Net income and EPS increased by 15% and 18% respectively, both reflecting the strong operating income growth as well as a non-recurring tax benefit recognized in the fourth quarter. EPS was $3.18, which includes an $0.08 contribution from share repurchases. During the quarter, we repurchased $1.8 billion worth of stock and an additional $586 million through January 26, 2024. So let's turn to page four, where you can see the operational metrics for the fourth quarter. Worldwide gross dollar volume, or GDV, increased by 10% year-over-year on a local currency basis. In the U.S., <clears throat> GDV increased by 4%, with credit growth of 5% and debit growth of 3%. Outside of the U.S., volume increased 13%, with credit growth of 13% and deb debit growth of 12%. Sequentially, the debit growth rate was primarily impacted by the lapping of the NatWest portfolio migration in the U.K., Overall, cross-border volume increased 18% globally for the quarter on a local currency basis, reflecting continued strong growth in both travel and non-travel-related cross-border spending. While this is sequentially lower versus Q3, this is primarily due to tougher comps as we continue to lap the cross-border travel recovery from last year. Turning to page 5, switch transactions grew 12% year-over-year in Q4. Both card-present and card-not-present growth rates remain strong. Card-present growth was aided in part by increases in contactless penetration, as contactless now represents approximately 65% of all in-person switched purchase transactions. In addition, card growth was 8%. Globally, there are 3.3 billion MasterCard and Maestro-branded cards issued. Turning to slide six for a look into our net revenues for the fourth quarter discussed on a currency neutral basis. Payment network net revenue increased 7%, primarily driven by domestic and cross-border transaction and volume growth, and also includes growth in rebates and incentives. Value-added services and solutions net revenue increased 17%, primarily driven by strong growth in our cyber and intelligence solutions, driven by the growth in our underlying drivers and the continued scaling of our fraud and security solutions and our identity and authentication solutions. In addition, we saw strong growth in our marketing, data analytics, and consulting services, as well as our loyalty solutions. This was partially tempered by slower relative growth in our other solutions. Now let's turn to page seven to discuss key metrics related to the payment network, again described on a currency neutral basis, unless otherwise noted. Looking quickly at each metric, domestic assessments were up 7%, while worldwide GDV grew 10%. The difference is primarily driven by mix. Cross-border assessments increased 21%, while cross-border volumes increased 18%. The three PPD difference is primarily due to favorable mix. 
transaction processing assessments were up 10%, while switch transactions grew 12%. The 2 PPT difference is primarily due to lower revenues related to FX volatility versus the prior year. Other network assessments were $251 million this quarter. As a reminder, these assessments primarily relate to licensing, implementation, and other franchise fees, and may fluctuate from period to period. Moving on to page eight, you can see that on a non-GAAP currency neutral basis, excluding special items, total adjusted operating expenses increased 9%, which includes a minimal impact from acquisitions. This increase was primarily due to increased spending on personnel to support the continued execution of our strategic initiatives, and increased spending on marketing campaigns, advertising, and sponsorships like the UEFA Champions League and the Rugby World Cup. Turning to page nine, you will see that we are no longer providing operating metrics as a percentage of 2019, given that we are well past the pandemic. Now, let me comment on the operating metric trends in the fourth quarter and through the first four weeks of January. Starting with switch volume growth year over year, the sequential decline from Q3 to Q4 is primarily due to the lapping effects from the routing of all MasterCard branded volume in Japan to the MasterCard switch and the migration of the NatWest portfolio to MasterCard. Specific to the US, the sequential decline from Q3 to Q4 was primarily due to tougher comps. Moving to the first four weeks of January, switched volume growth in the U.S. was impacted primarily by severe weather events across the country. As we look specifically at the fourth week of January, which did not have the same impacts from severe weather, switched volume in the U.S. returned to approximately 5% growth year over year, similar to what we saw in December. Outside of the U.S., we continue to lap the migration of the NatWest portfolio. Switch transactions follow similar patterns to switched volumes. Looking at cross-border for both Q4 and the first four weeks of January, cross-border travel growth continues to be primarily impacted by tougher comps as we lap the recovery of travel. Cross-border card not present X-travel continues to show strength. Turning now to page 10, I wanted to share our thoughts on fiscal year 2024. Let me start by saying our business fundamentals remain strong. We continue to grow through a combination of healthy consumer spending, new and renewed customer agreements, continued secular shift from cash to card, and strong growth across our service offerings. In short, as Michael said, we are executing on our strategy and realizing the benefits from our growth algorithm. Overall, we remain fairly positive about the growth outlook. Consumer spending continues to be supported by a strong labor market and wage growth. Our base case scenario for 2024 reflects healthy consumer spending and recent spending dynamics. That being said, we are closely monitoring both positives and negatives in the macro environment, as well as geopolitical events. And we stand ready to manage our investment levels as appropriate while maintaining focus on our key st strategic priorities. As it relates to the full year 2024, our base case is for net revenues to grow at the high end of a low double-digit rate on a currency-neutral basis, excluding acquisitions. Acquisitions and foreign exchange are forecasted to have a minimal impact for the year. In terms of operating expenses, we expect full-year growth at the low end of a low double-digit rate on a currency-neutral basis, excluding acquisitions and special items. Of note, 
This includes an increase of approximately one PPT in operating expense due to a new Brazil tax legislation, which went into effect as of January 1, 2024. This legislation results in higher operating expenses due to an increase in indirect taxes, which is more than offset by a reduction in our income taxes expense. Acquisitions and foreign exchange are forecasted to have a minimal impact to this growth rate for the year. Now, turning to Q1 2024, year-over-year net revenue growth is expected to be at the low end of a low double-digit rate on a currency-neutral basis, excluding acquisitions. Acquisitions and foreign exchange are forecasted to have a minimal impact to this growth rate for the quarter. Let me briefly talk through why our full-year currency-neutral net revenue growth is expected to be higher than the first quarter of 2024. This is primarily driven by two factors. First, Revenues related to FX volatility were highest in Q1 2023 compared to the other quarters in the year. And second, while our value-added services and solutions continue to grow at a healthy pace, from a cadence perspective, we expect Q1 growth to be lower relative to the other quarters, primarily due to tougher comps. From an operating expense standpoint, we expect Q1 operating expense growth to be at the high end of a high single-digit rate versus a year year ago, again, on a currency-neutral basis, excluding acquisitions and special items. Once again, this includes an increase of approximately one PPT related to the Brazil tax legislation that I mentioned earlier. Acquisitions are forecasted to add zero to one PPT to this OPEX growth, and foreign exchange is expected to be a headwind of approximately zero to one PPT for the quarter. Other items to keep in mind, on the other income and expense line, we expect an expense of, approxim- of approximately 60 to 65 million for Q1, given the prevailing interest rates and debt levels. This excludes gains and losses on our equity investments, which are excluded from our non-GAAP metrics. Finally, we expect a non-GAAP tax rate of 16 to 17% for Q1 and approximately 17% on a full year basis, all based on the current geographic mix of our business. This reflects the benefit to our effective tax rate related to the Brazil tax legislation that I mentioned earlier. And with that, I will turn the call back over to Devin. Thank you. Brianna, you may open the call for questions now. Thank you. At this time, I would like to remind everyone, in order to ask a question, press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Please only press star 1 once to queue up for a question, as pressing star 1 multiple times may affect your position in the queue. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. Your first question comes from the line of Harshta Rawat with Bernstein. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Um, I want to ask about U.S. card volumes. Um, So whether aside, the, the growth has decelerated a bit to mid-single-digit levels uh, versus what we've seen in the last five to 10 years, especially if we compare that to PC. Um, so how should we think about kind of a normalized card volume growth in the U.S.? Or is there simply more runway on number of transactions? Um, so that's the metric we should be watching. Um, and also, uh, just as a follow-up, can you also comment on Reg II impact on U.S. bonds? Thank you. Sure, Hashita. Um, let, let me take both those questions. First, on Reg II, uh, let me just kind of share with everybody that from a Reg II standpoint, we haven't seen any material impact uh, come through as, as far as what we've seen so far on the data. Obviously, we'll keep a close eye on it as the year progresses, but nothing to actually report from any sort of material impact. 
on your question around U.S. card volume growth, and, you know, look at the end of the day, here's the way we think about it, right? We continue to believe that uh, in the U.S. there remains a um, decent amount of secular opportunity, both from a volume standpoint and from a transaction growth standpoint. In addition to that, as you know, business models are evolving, spending behaviors are changing, and that creates greater opportunity from a volume and a transaction standpoint. But more specifically, what I tell you is the following, which is as it relates to the U.S. Um, we've got to kind of think about what's going on with PCE and what the impact of inflation is in the PCE numbers relative to where it's taking place, i.e., is it taking place in uh, carded volumes or is it taking in a place in non-carded categories of spend? So as you do the analysis, or at least as we do the analysis, the way we think about this is we look at PCE, we think about on a normalized basis if inflation were to take place um, you know, fairly evenly across both carded and non-carded uh, PCE, you know, it gives us a, um, a high degree of comfort that there's a decent amount of secular opportunity which still remains in the U.S. from a growth standpoint. Now, in addition to the secular opportunity and the fact that the U.S. continues to actually perform well from an overall consumer health standpoint, we're very active. We're growing our volumes by winning share. I mean, you've heard about this um, quarter over quarter in terms of what we're doing to, to win volumes from, from new customers. We've had good wins on the debit space, which, as you know, is, is a challenged kind of environment in the U.S. Um, so I, overall, I tell you from the U.S. standpoint, it continues to be a very important market, one which is going to be a decent contributor to our growth, driven by the PCE growth component, the secular shift, as well as share. And again, all I'm talking about is on the hard payment volume side of the business. Perfect, thank you. Sure. Our next, next question, question comes from Craig Moore with FT Partners. Your line is open. Yeah, good morning, thanks. Um, so two questions, one, uh, to what degree are conversions of new wins uh, contributing to fiscal year 24 guidance? And secondly, regarding China, you know, knowing that you um, need to launch your business there within six months of approval, I was wondering if you could characterize conversations with issuers there and whether you've been able to keep warm relationships with those issuers over the years, considering you were in a very strong position uh, in China when regulations changed, um, whatever it was, seven, eight years ago. Thanks. Right. Let me uh, take the China question first, and we come back to the conversion topic that you raised. Um, so, needless to say, we, we are we're thrilled about China. So this is a it's a massive economy, um, and we feel we're well positioned to serve it. As I said in my um, remarks at the beginning, we feel we're uniquely positioned to put into the hand of Chinese consumers a solution, a seamless solution that works domestically as well as when they travel. That's uh, not unique. There's another competitor that has that kind of a pro proposition, but um, we do have the much better acceptance network to provide an end-to-end -end solution that works well. Um, on that basis, um, we're busy right now uh, uh, with our partners in China, with the banks, uh, with um, acquirers, issuers, and so forth, uh, to discuss um, rolling out uh, on the issuing side as well as on the acceptance side for six months, as you rightly said. Now, for the for years, we have been very active in China on the cross-border side, and those are strong relationships with the same exact banks. 
And, um, you know, we're just, I mentioned too, with ICBC and Bank of Communications, we're just launching new products. So the fact that we are well positioned today with the banks um, gives us an edge here on moving forward at speed. As I also said, you know, going live within the first six months doesn't mean that we're live everywhere and we have to build this out um, over time um, to get full opportunity in the medium to the long term. And uh, on the conversion piece, just to know, I'm, you know, for the U.S., um, you know, we uh, saw, um, I mentioned this earlier, for Webster and for Citizens, um, conversion is starting. Some of the big conversions in Europe have already completed. Uh, Sachin talked about uh, the uh, the lapping for NetWest and so forth. So, um, Sachin, if there's anything else? Yeah, no, Craig, I, I would just add, like Michael said, right, I mean, as you would imagine, for, in, in terms of how we think about 2024 and our thoughts for 2024, we do factor in what our best estimate is as it, as it relates to the conversion of the portfolios. What I tell you is we've had a decent amount of wins across the globe. We, uh, for the most part, the sizable ones are, you know, staggered wins, as in they come on over a period of time. They're not episodic flips, which will take place all at one time. So, for example, you know, Citizens Webster, Unicredit, you know, Deutsche Bank, all of these will will play out over the course of 24 and some instances over multiple years. So we we factor in our best estimates on those conversions as we kind of put our thoughts together for the year. Thank you. Our next question comes from Sanjay Sakrani with KBW. Your line is open. Thank you. Good morning, Sachin. Thank you for um, sort of the cadence for the year with the first quarter. But I was just wondering, could you just elaborate a little bit more on the expectations for payments versus the value-added service revenues? And then specific to that Brazil tax legislation, I guess, is it neutral to EPS? It adds to OPEX but lowers taxes. Just maybe you could help us with that too. Thank you. Sure. Let me just take the Brazil one uh, first, and I'll come back to your second question. Um, so on, on the Brazil piece, uh, it it increases our operating expenses because it's an increase in indirect taxes, which are there. There is a It's more than offset in our tax rate and in, in the thoughts we've given you from a tax rate standpoint. So from an overall EPS standpoint, it actually ends up being slightly accretive because of the more than offset which is taking place on the on the tax line there. On your question around payments versus value-added services and solutions expectations, look, we're not giving specific guidance as it relates to how we see uh, payment network revenue and value-added services and solutions revenue. But at the high level, here's what I'd say. You know, let me first address the value-added services and solutions piece. Um, we continue to see good growth in uh, in, in our solutions around um, everything around our fraud and security solutions, our data analytics, analytics and insights, um, and, you know, we're building all of those into our thoughts for the year. We've had a good year in 2023. We continue to see good, um, a good outlook for value-added services and solutions going into 2024. Likewise for payments, right? I mean, as you can imagine, in payments, it's, it's a function of what we think will happen from a carded market volume growth rate standpoint and what the impacts will be from share wins as well as the impacts of rebates and incentives. So all of that kind of is factored in. What I would tell you broadly is that we continue to expect value-added services and solutions to grow at a faster pace than we do on the payment network side. Thank you. Our next question comes from Tinjen Wong with JP Morgan. Your line is open. Hey, thank you. Good morning. Thanks for all the detail here. Just thinking about the outlook, I think Harshita asked it. Uh, as well, just the outlook for growth between the U.S. and rest of world. Any 
Anything to call out there? Do you expect the trends observed in 23 to be different in, in 2024 here between the two regions? Thanks. Yes, and honestly, I would tell you from a secular opportunity standpoint, right? I mean, we continue to believe, broadly speaking, uh, the secular opportunity is greater outside of the U.S. than it is in the U.S. There's a good news, bad news story there. And um, the good news is that that means we've been quite successful in driving the secular shift opportunity in the U.S., which is, you know, which is what you're seeing in the results come through. Um, and again, from a bad news standpoint, is there's a lower remaining opportunity on the volume side in the U.S. But if you ask me the question on a year-over-year basis, I would tell you I don't expect any meaningful shift in terms of suddenly the trajectory of how the secular opportunity is being realized between the U.S. and the rest of the world to be changing between 23 and 24. Very clear. Thank you. Our next question comes from Dan Perlin with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning. I um, I heard you call out a couple of times geopolitical concerns, and I know that there's some I don't know 30 or 40 different elections happening around you know the globe. So my my question to you is, as you think about managing those potential concerns, are there are there certain regions where you feel like um, there could be pockets of more nationalistic behavior, which would be problematic, you know, for you guys getting into those markets, or that because of election years, historically, what you've seen are that it, it kind of slows down adoption um, and some of those secular trends that you would have otherwise been able to enjoy in maybe a non-election year. So just trying to handicap what maybe some of those positives and negatives could be uh, just geopolitically this year. Thanks. Right, Dan, you, you just touched on some of the key things to to watch out for, but this is not no different than us monitoring a fiscal uh, monetary policy reactions by gov uh, by central banks and governments. So those are all things that affect consumer sentiment, potentially affect consumer spending. So we'll just have to stay close to what that is. Our discipline around these things is to um, do some solid scenario planning and making sure our playbook in terms of managing our financials responsibility. Um, responsibly is is up to date. Um, certainly, the last three years have had no shortages of such challenges, and uh, we we adapted quickly. Uh, more specifically, to the points that you mentioned, um, you know, elections happen regularly, so there is nothing dramatically new uh, in in 2024. Um, and geopolitical conflicts, uh, you know, they've been around and they keep going. And that is something, you know, we'll watch what is the impact on energy prices and various downstream into the, the broader economy. Um, yet again, our uh, Economics Institute uh, is keeping a focus on that. So nothing very specific. That's why we kept it relatively uh, high level. Um, but, you know, these days, one has to just take a look left and right all the time. Understood. Thank you. Your next question comes from Darren Peller with Wolf Research. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Um, thanks. It's good to see the uh, value-add services solutions accelerate. I think it went back to 17% from 14. Um, maybe you could just revisit that for a minute in terms of that. I know you sounded confident that that should sustain strong growth relative to the business. And so maybe just revisit the, the drivers of that and what gives you the confidence that sustains um, and really just overall, what's the, what's, if you've sort of ranked the top items in that category. Thanks. All right. So let me kick off on that. You know, if you, if you 
split out the value-added services here. You know, you have our other services, which uh, Sachin touched on earlier, for example, our real-time payment assets and things like that. Um, the, uh, the thing that we have historically focused on here in this space uh, is um, our cyber and intelligence solutions, fraud solutions, um, and the data insights and analytics solutions. So if you think about how that flywheel talks about, I talked about the powerful cycle earlier on, so more payments, uh, more payments uh, that need to be kept safe, more payments throughout more data, which drive more data analytics inside. That is the underlying kind of secular trend, which is pretty closely related to the secular shift um, as well. So that is the, the baseline uh, of, of growth here. Um, and then you look at some of the more you know, specific growth drivers here. For example, in data analytics, um, in that group, we also have our personalization solution. So everybody's trying to engage their consumers at this point. Uh, that is on the banking side, it's on the merchant side, and here coming in with a solution that provides the right offer at the, through the right channel at the right time to uh, drive through that clutter. We have the number one personalization company that we acquired two years ago. That is one of the drivers. We expect some big growth there. You look at the other hand on the, digital, on the cyber and security uh, solutions, digital identity. An authentication solution today, you know, nobody likes passwords, you're in a situation where you, you have to end up making trade-offs between um, simplicity and security when it comes to digital payments and with our technology we find ways to uh, go around that effectively, driving down fraud at the same, at the same time ensure that there's um, low abandonment rates. So, um, you know, biometric solutions, I talked about them earlier, is one of those examples. So, across these two um, portfolios, CNI and DNS, Cyber Analytics and Data Insights, that's where we see the big growth, the big demand. Um, other solutions, real-time payments, we have a, sol uh, you know, a strong position there. We talked about this a couple of quarters ago where we said we are in the markets in which we are and we're driving to scale volumes. And the reference to our strategic partnership with the TCH just shows that we continue on that front. So those are kind of the key drivers that we see here. We feel this is a uniquely differentiated portfolio and it's in great demand. That's helpful. Thanks, Ben. Our next question comes from Chris Kennedy with William Blair. Your line is open. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for taking the question. And you just talked about it, but can you give a broader update on your digital identity solutions and what your strategy is for that and how it can ultimately impact your business? Thank you. Right, so uh, let me do that. Um, I just gave you the headlines on that. So specifically within that, there's a whole set of solutions from biometric to um, you know, identity events where we have um, an ability to provide an identity score, a confidence score to one of our customers and saying, you know, this person has lived at this address before and here, here is their previous employment. So with this, you know, with a certain level of a confidence we can say this is the person you know all this stuff is kind of happening behind uh, behind the scenes um, that is the approach that we're taking um, but you know it's not just uh, our identity data we are combining this with open banking and we're trying to find use cases where this really makes a difference for example an account opening so we're taking our open banking technology and our Finicity uh, footprint here in the United States, you know, all the way up to 90% of our deposit accounts in, in this market, and we're taking our digital identity solution into a premium account owner verification and account opening solution. That, those are the kind of examples where, where we see we're truly differentiated. 
at the highest level, it's before and after the transaction we're driving value uh, through digital identity. We feel this is absolutely central to the digital economy. And uh, that's why we put it in the new network, because there are people who have identity data and there are people who want to use identity data. We don't want to hold it. We're sitting somewhere in the middle and we are uh, essentially the trusted partner that can prove uh, one way or another if a person is the person they claim to be. Minimal use of data, permission data, that's it. Great. Thanks for taking the question. Your next question comes from Paul Golding with Macquarie Capital. Your line is open. Thanks so much. Um, I guess to touch on Finicity, since you just mentioned it, Michael, um, do you see this evolving more so as a, a value-added service and solution driver or a volume driver now that you've had it in the portfolio for some time? And then as a follow-on, just wanted to see if we could get some more color on the acceptance location growth from a regional perspective, given the strength in international volumes in the period. Thank you so much. Right. So starting with, with Finicity, and then, you know, we, we have the correspondent, uh, corresponding set of capabilities through our IR acquisition in Europe. We're also building out connectivity in Australia. Those are the three uh, regions where we're focused. And open banking does, does a number of things. You know, essentially what we see is a set of use cases here that, that rise to the top and everything that you could do with open banking. In the end, there's this big vision about open data where people can use their data footprint, small businesses can use their data footprint for getting access to better services. But for now, what's really rising to the top is account opening, the example that I already gave. Open banking um, for payments, I come to that for a moment. Uh, in, in a moment, open banking for lending and uh, for small business in, in particular. So those are kind of the three categories that we feel are um, particularly relevant right now. For payments, it's really interesting, to your point. Is this a volume driver? It could be, because the connectivity uh, that we have here, what, what we're trying to do is facilitate payments, for example, in non-carded use cases, as we have with the pay-by-bank solution in the United States in partnership with, uh, with Chase Bank. So, um, we hope to see significant volume growth out of that. That's the whole idea. And, um, you know, that builds on our experience with Payback Bank in the UK. This is a somewhat different approach here in the, uh, in the US where our open banking uh, capabilities are the true differentiator. So um, use cases that matter, that's the focus. And out of that, we hope to see uh, not only API clicks on account opening, but also payment volume coming through. Your right, next so question. The, uh, that, was, that was the second part of the question. Thank you. My team is just reminding me. Acceptance growth regionally. I mean, it comes to uh, the answer actually that Sachin gave earlier, where we talked a little bit about payments growth uh, in the regional comparison. So, you know, when when you think when you think beyond the United States, um, we see tremendous growth opportunity. Out here in the United States, uh, you would say it's more in new use cases and verticals, um, and it's more generally in broader acceptance across the payments landscape and the rest of the world. There's even significant um, geographic opportunities to grow. Take Japan, for example. So it's a, it's a country that you know is where the government has put out a stated policy to drive a cashless Japan. So tremendous um, upside there. We talked about China earlier on, where we're investing heavily in acceptance footprint. So I would say it's leaning a little more on the international side, but here in the U.S., we're very busy going for news cases and verticals. Your next question comes from David Togut with Evercore. Your line is open. 
Thank you. Good morning. Um, Europe continues to be a driver of differentiated growth for MasterCard. Could you share your insights into your runway for growth and in some of your largest countries, for example, Germany and, you know, Italy, and, and maybe frame that in terms of, you know, payment volume growth and, and vast growth opportunity? Right. Let me start off with uh, with that question. Um, first of all, I, I do want to under, underline what you what you just said. Um, it is a source of differentiated growth for us. We've had a great run in, in Europe, and it's a combination of share growth, but it's also uh, driven by uh, the ways that we find to go after the accelerated uh, secular shift that we saw in the, on the, the back end of COVID. Countries like Germany really driving up contactless usage, uh, just to give you one example. So. Overall, uh, Europe's been firing on all cylinders for us. Um, and, you know, I come back to the growth algorithm that we laid out for payments, which applies very much in Europe. So, then, you know, European economies will do what they do, but we will continue to focus on share gain, but we will also be very busy to take the share gain that we've already had and turn that into profitable volume for us. Uh, conversions driving that, we had a question on that earlier. So that, that's driver number one. Um, and then going into new flows in Europe, uh, there's there's opportunity there as well. If you look at alternative payment systems, everything that's going on in Europe, clearly through PSD2, PSD3 and so forth, there's a lot of movement in Europe that we will stay on top as we look ahead of um, into that. Um, you see our differentiated assets in bill pay in the Nordics and so forth. So we have a pretty broad footprint to participate in all the drivers um, in Europe. In terms of um, services, the service has been strong in Europe um, for a long time. Our advisors or our consulting business has been a, a winner for us in Europe for the longest time. And if you look at some of these big wins that we've talked about, they all have a significant uh, uh, contribution of services. In fact, I would say oftentimes they are one of the reasons that we win those deals. So nothing dramatically different there. Um, I think Europe has caught up on the secular and trend and digitization, and we're firing on all cylinders. We have, we're fully invested in Europe. As you know, one of the big topics in Europe is uh, you know, European sovereignty, and we're deeply invested in Europe with our uh, efforts, and we're engaging uh, with, uh, you know, in Brussels and the nation states and so forth, which is very important for us to do to be a partner on their journey. Yeah, David, it's Sachin. I'll just emphasize what Michael just said, right? He's mentioned on a couple of occasions today that, you know, payments drives value-added citizen solutions and value-added citizen solutions drive payments. It's no different in Europe, right? Uh, for all the share wins we've had in Europe, for all the growth we're seeing on the payment side, it creates new opportunities for us on the services uh, um, side. And then vice versa, as you actually do deliver on those services, you get the benefit of additional data. When you get the benefit of additional data, you're able to help optimize existing portfolios, which again drives payment volume growth. So, and, and that's not unique to Europe. It's actually true for the way we run the business globally. But the fact that we are actually increasingly, you know, becoming more prominent in the payment flow enables that, um, that, that cycle to work quite effectively. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Ken Sikoski with Autonomous Research. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking the question. Um, I just wanted to ask about the yields on the domestic uh, assessment revenue line. You know, that yield has declined year over year for some time now, and it came in a little bit lighter than some were expecting this quarter. Um, I think you highlighted mix impact in the yields or the spread between revenue and volume growth. 
Um, so can you just provide some more detail around the specific changes that you're seeing uh, in terms of mix? And can we get to a place where domestic yields are actually expanding year over year? Thank you. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'll, I'll comment on the, on the yield piece because what you're seeing effectively in the fourth quarter of uh, 2023, when you look at payment network net revenue um, divided by GDP, is what you see every year in terms of the sequential decline in yields. And that's primarily been driven by the fact that, remember, in, in the third quarter of all years, we tend to have our strongest cross-border performance. And our cross-border tends to come with our best yields. And so what you've got is when you're, you're, you're getting more bang for the buck for a dollar of GDP on the cross-border side than you are on the domestic volume side. So that's what's causing for that sequential decline. You'll see that um, as a pattern which has existed in prior years as well. Broadly speaking, I would tell you that um, otherwise there's nothing unusual to call out on the payment network net revenue yield. The one reminder I'll give you is that we run the business not only to optimize payment network net revenue yield, but overall net revenue yield for our company. Because again, it goes back to the question David asked right before you, Ken, which is at the end of the day, we've got to be in the payment flow. We've got to allow ourselves to have the opportunity to deliver services on those payments to generate additional revenue, which causes for overall net accretion in our overall net revenue yield. So I know your question is specific to payment network net revenue yield, but I just wanted to make sure you know that from our mindset standpoint, we're looking at payment network net revenue yield as well as overall net revenue yield for the company. I should say, you know, earlier when I was talking about the payment algorithm, I, I said that we are putting great focus on um, our financial discipline, and we do it with uh, revenues in mind and with services revenue in mind. So, yes, it needs to add up to the overall net revenue yield, as Sachin just said. But I'm telling you, we don't want to win every deal. We want to win the deals we want to win, and we're pretty disciplined about it. Great. Thanks, guys. Your next question comes from Andrew Jeffrey with Truist Securities. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, good morning. I appreciate you uh, taking the question. I wanted to dig in, Michael, if I'm at a little bit uh, more on um, pay, on your pay-by-bank initiatives. Uh, it, can this be, especially as we see the emergence of networks like Hex um, in Brazil, for example, can this be a, a sort of a standalone growth driver in its own right, or is it sort of folded into your overall comments on open banking? I just wanted to see if there's an important distinction to draw as we think about go-forward growth opportunities. Right. So um, I think both questions, your question and the previous question, hit on an important point there. There is a particular um, a point of interest for us at the intersection of open banking and payments. It enables uh, the, the open banking connectivity enables us to go after use cases uh, that we otherwise wouldn't be able to go after. Um, so here's additional data that is available that you can then combine in combination with an underlying RT RTP rail to make a profitable uh, proposition for a customer, which is exactly what Chase Pay by Bank is. Basically, you debit your customer when there's a balance, and that is what the open banking connectivity tells you. So, you know, that's a, that's a good solution. If we look broadly around the world, um, you know, uh, PIX, uh, UPI in India, FedNow, there's a bunch of real-time real -time payment systems, and those are the kind of rails where we have experience, we have connectivity, in some we offer them ourselves. So that is exactly what we're looking at as one of the assets and the propositions that we will bring together for our customers. Now, uh, more broadly speaking, when you look at PICS, 
when you look at UPI, one other thing to keep in mind is, you know, here's public sector uh, you know, doing a good job in pulling in more participants in the overall digital economy so we can come in with our solutions, our real-time payment solutions, our card-based solutions, but they're basically extending the digital economy to create a tide that kind of lifts everybody's boats, financial inclusion being the headline. Um, so that's something to, to uh, consider. Um, somewhere in between, there are points that we will manage very carefully as in when these systems grow uh, and they provide you know, alternatives to our solutions that we compete um, and provide the best uh, you know, solution to consumers and to our customers. Um, on the fraud side, on ease of use, a lot of these systems don't have all of these functionalities. So those are things that we focus on. So we're, we're focused on providing the best choice to our customers. We don't mind the competition, but we actually see quite a bit of opportunity for us to use these rails um, for the open banking type of solution that you just asked about. So um, interesting space, um, and it drives the overall economic growth, uh, digital economic Appreciate growth. It. Thank you. Your next question comes from Trevor Williams with Jeffries. Your line is open. Great, thanks. Sachin, I was just hoping you could put a finer point on the growth algorithm within the full year revenue outlook. I know you mentioned some of the cadence dynamics with VAS and currency vault, but any help on what you're assuming for um, for volume and transaction growth relative to the January trends, rebates and incentives, pricing, uh, any help on those would be great. Thanks. Yeah, so Look, I, I'm not going to give you specific kind of forecasts as it relates to what we're assuming from a driver standpoint. We've kind of shared with you what our base case is, uh, and the base case continues to assume, you know, that, you know, the consumer spending remains healthy, and we're reflecting in the current spending dynamics uh, from an overall kind of volumes and, and transaction standpoint. I, I think to your question on, on pricing, it, it's no different than it's been in the past. We always price based on the value we deliver to our customers, and we will continue to do that. Uh, wherever it makes sense uh, across the globe. And, you know, we kind of have, you know, new things which we're launching. There's new value we're delivering to our customers. And as we do that, we'll continue to price for that. On specifically the, the Contra question, I, I think the, 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 the important thing to note on Contra is that at the end of the day, Contra is enabling volume growth, right? We, at the, we pay incentives and rebates to our customers to bring more volume onto our network. And as we do that, you know, we're paying for that. Um, for the first quarter, we expect our Contra as a percentage of our payment network assessments to be, you know, roughly similar to what you saw in Q4 of 2023. Uh, I, I would tell you uh, on a full year basis, it's going to be entirely a function of how we see deals play out, what the pipeline is. Obviously, we know what the outlook is from a pipeline standpoint. Some of that will come to fruition. Some of that will not. There'll be other things which will move in and out. And so I'm not going to kind of share with you what the full year outlook is um, on, on Contra, but for Q1, I can kind of give you um, my thoughts, which are we expect that Contra as a percentage of payment network assessments uh, will be uh, roughly similar to what we saw in, in Q4 of 2023. Great. Thanks. I think we have time for just one more, Brianna. Our last question comes from Ashwin Shervikar with City. Your line is open. Um, thanks. Um, hi, Michael. Second, uh, good quarter. I uh, appreciate all the comments so far. Um, my question is is on real-time payments, and uh, Michael, you did have uh, some uh, incremental comments there on TCH, but you know, saw the TCH renewal 
obviously you have a global set of capabilities here. My question is, what's the runway and what drives it? Is it the use cases rather than more countries? And then if it is use cases, what are some of the um, use cases that you see coming up uh, that are that are exciting um, uh, from a conversions perspective? Right. So, um, um, first of all, the uh, you know strategic relationship here in the in the U.S. with the, uh, the clearinghouse is important to note. Uh, back when uh, in 2016-17, real-time payments really took uh, took off. Um, this is when we invested in Vocalink, and Vocalink was a partner with uh, um, the clearinghouse at the time. So. You know, a strong and more strategic renewal uh, here is is a big statement, uh, and it speaks to our position in real-time payments. Um, you know, 10 out of the top 50 GDP countries, we either operate or uh, are you know providing so- software and services to the real-time payment system. So uh, it's real, it's there, uh, as the name indicates, and uh, it's carrying a lot of volume um, for us in itself. That's an interesting business. Uh, but it's much more than that. Uh, it's much more than that as we're you know talking to various players, including uh, you know the ones that I mentioned um, about new applications that come on top of that. The you know coming right back to the Chase Pay by Bank example, here is you know access to rails on one hand, and then a set of additional data that uh, turns a simple payment that gets money from A to B to something that's a value-add payment, that is where we're going to go. And these you know, use cases will play out in a somewhat different way. It is obviously always our interest to find global solutions, but it's also this is a uh, rather more um, geographic-specifically driven um, space. So we'll have to see where that all lands. So we keep that in mind, which is why we're not driving into many more markets right now. We're in the most critical markets, and here uh, we're staying very close to where that is going. But it's applications and it's scaling volumes in the markets that we're in. It's where the focus is. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. On your last comment. Well, as always, uh, thank you for your support to MasterCard. Uh, thank you for listening to Sachin and me, and thank you to everybody at MasterCard for making all of this work. Uh, we'll speak to you in one quarter. Um, it was also unusual to note this is on a Wednesday today. I don't think we ever had that before. Uh, certainly for me, this is the first Wednesday. We'll see how we mix it up next time. Speak to you in a quarter. Thank you, and bye-bye.